WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. You're listening to The Metro on 1019 WDET, your source for daily news, arts, and culture here on The Metro, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. And I, excuse me, I am Tia Graham. And today on the program, we'll hear from Michigan Poets Laureate Nandi Comer about the search for Detroit's Poet and Composer Laureate and a poetry workshop series for teens. And of course, we're going to get into Pop-Tarts. Always love Pop-Tarts, but first... In recent months, the city of Dearborn has seen a lot in the national spotlight. In fact, it's been there because the city has some of the highest concentration of Arab Americans in our country, and many have been protesting Israel's destruction of Gaza, the killing of about 25,000 Gazans, and the migration of millions of people in that area of the world. That has had deep political consequences here at home. After overwhelmingly supporting Joe Biden in 2020, support for the now president dropped 17% by Arab Americans in Dearborn. All this has caused Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud to refuse to meet with the president before eventually taking a meeting and continuing his demand for a ceasefire to the war in Gaza. To discuss this and more as we rapidly approach uh, the presidential primary, we have Professor Sally Howard here. She is a professor of history and Arab American studies at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. Professor Howe, welcome to the Metro. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. So just to understand a little bit more about the scope of what we're talking about here, how big is the Arab American voting bloc in Michigan and where are these folks mostly in the state? Well, so the Arab community is is much bigger than the community in Dearborn. Dearborn, uh, the population there is around 55,000. Um, the population of Arab Americans in the city. They're more than half of the city's population now. Uh, but the, the neighborhoods surrounding Dearborn have another 50, uh, about 55,000 Arab Americans in them. And we have uh, uh, the Chaldean community in the northern suburbs uh, numbers well over 150,000. Um, so overall, they're, they're roughly, well, if you go by the census numbers, the numbers are still around 225,000. But people consider the census numbers to be an undercount. Yeah, sure. Um, so so people in the Arab American and Chaldean communities put the numbers up closer to 300,000. Do we know a percentage or a breakdown of voting? Does that uh, equate out to what we would see normally in other populations, higher, lower, if you know? Uh, people vote. Uh, the voter participation in this population is, is very high. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the core political values in the Arab American community and how has that been expressed in our politics over the past few decades? Uh, the community is incredibly diverse. <laughs> so people care about a lot of different political issues. They care about uh, funding for education. They care about uh, access to health care by the population. Uh, they care about um, economic opportunity for entrepreneurs. Um, they care about uh, uh, the ability for uh, basically for people to join unions and, and have union representation. 
And of course, they also care about the homelands that they come from, which are numerous. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the diversity of that population, and we've even seen growing diversity in voting preferences within the community. Can you provide us insight into those differences and how Arab American voting preferences are changing today, including if there's a breakdown by gender or immigration status, anything that you can link that to? Uh. Well, um, immigration status has a lot to do with it because if yeah. you're if you haven't yet gotten your citizenship, then you can't vote yet. So well, right. it, it really is dependent on whether or not people can vote. Um, uh, I think also it has to do with like you know the the Chaldean community, which lives in the northern suburbs, has tended to be more conservative, more pro Republican. Um, uh, uh, many people consider them to have been a key uh, uh, factor in uh, Donald Trump's election yeah. um, eight years ago, that they were sort of the deciding vote. He won by 10,000 votes in the state, and that population has roughly 10,000 votes, so, um, uh, or probably many more than 10,000 votes. So, And they, were over, they overwhelmingly voted for Trump. So there's a difference between that population and the, the Arab-American population in Dearborn, which tends to be majority Muslim, um, and tends to, you know, they they come from different parts of the Middle East. There's an Iraqi community, a Syrian community, a, a Lebanese community, a Yemeni community, a Palestinian community. So there's a lot more diversity in that Dearborn enclave. And the community has been, uh, you know, the Arab Americans were a part of the city of Dearborn before it took its current shape. They've been there back since the, since the 1910s. Uh, they came there uh, at the time that the Fort Rouge factory was being built. Uh, and they lived in the neighborhood sort of underneath the Rouge factory. They uh, were working class people. They were part of the, the, the working class uh, community that was established in Dearborn in that period, which tended to be definitely pro-labor. <laughs> Uh, so sort of moving into the 60s and 70s and 80s, people were definitely in the Democratic camp. When when Jesse Jackson uh, ran for president in 1988, he actually won the primary in Dearborn. Um, and that was largely because uh, he reached out so much to the Arab American community there and they put him over the top. So there's this sort of long history of left activism in the community. But because um, people are immigrants and they tend to be small business owners and uh, many of them have sort of conservative religious values. The Republican Party has also had a, um, you know, had much support in the community through the years. And I think that people were in particular sort of moving more and more into that Republican camp uh, prior to 9-11. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, George Bush was definitely sort of trying to appeal to um, Arab Americans when he – Arab and Muslim Americans when he initially ran for office. But um, since 9-11 and since the government sort of uh, uh, policies are sur of surveillance and since a lot of the rhetoric – um, of the Bush administration was, you know, encouraging suspicious uh, suspicion of Arab Americans. At that point, I think the community sort of went much more to the left. And um, the younger generation of Arab Americans in Dearborn today is definitely more in the progressive camp. Um, but uh, despite that, I mean, as, as you said in your promo, people supported Biden overwhelmingly in the last election. Um, the Trump years were very hard on the Arab American community. Um, uh, but in recent years, I think people have been sort of uh, growing frustrated with the Biden administration and, you know, some of the more conservative uh, 
values of the community. We're encouraging people to think more about the Republican Party um, in recent, you know, like in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but these uh, the events, the, the 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 situation in Gaza has just been so, um, you know, unfathomably painful for the community, and the president's, you know, sort of just um, very one-sided approach. Uh, to what's happening there and to the violence there. His, his you know, really, uh, until very recently, had seemed to have no concern for the Palestinians. Um, so this is sort of, uh, you know, consolidated Arab-American frustration with the Democratic Party. And so uh, now there's a large movement in the Arab-American and Muslim-American circles in Wayne County in particular to, to um to not vote, to to check uncommitted on the on the ballots that are in our hands right now if you registered for an absentee ballot. Professor House is Tia Graham with the Metro, and I just wanted to continue on with the conversation. Of course, you talked a little bit about what's happening in Gaza. Israel's war in Gaza has sparked a lot of protests that grew up in and around the Dearborn community, uh, right in the outskirts as well. And I saw so many of my neighbors who I honestly, you know, you didn't recognize or wouldn't know what part of the Middle East they were from. But I saw so many of my neighbors, Palestinians, who were out in, 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 in arms with everyone else around them. So were you surprised or what were your, your thoughts or reactions to the strength of the Arab Americans and others in and around Detroit? Uh, when the protest sparked? I was not surprised at all. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm surprised that we're not having like bigger demonstrations here, like, mm-hmm. like you're seeing in New York and Chicago and places like that, where tens of thousands of people are coming out into the street. Um, I think that there are many, many, many demonstrations happening here in Michigan. They're happening every day. They're small-scale events uh, where people come together and do letter-writing campaigns. There are call-in events where people call their elected officials together. There are creative events where people celebrate uh, Palestinian culture through food and the arts and music and other things. So here in Michigan, people are being very creative, and they're participating in all sorts of demonstrations. But we haven't seen one of those large marches with 100,000 people. Professor of History and Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, Sally Howe, thank you for joining us on the Metro. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. And when we return, we'll hear about how President Joe Biden's attempt to win back the White House. We'll hear a little bit more about it, as well as his attempt to court Michigan voters. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Tia Graham. I am here with Nick Austin. And just giving you all a quick weather forecast. It's a chilly start to the day. There's a chance of rain and snow uh, right before 1 p.m., which is happening right now. We see outside our door. Uh, Today's high is near 42 degrees and wind gusts could get as high as 37 miles per hour. So please be prepared for those strong winds. Now, 
By many measures, Democrats are doing pretty well. In Michigan, they controlled the governor's seat and temporarily had a majority in the state House and Senate. On the national level, they held on to similar majorities and unexpectedly did well in the midterms. But despite all this, Democratic President Joe Biden is not much more popular than presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump in the polls. WDET's Quinn Klein filtered digs into Democrats' strategy to win back the White House and the significance that Michigan voters will play in this attempt. Joe Biden stepped to the podium to address a nation only hours after the release of a report that called the president a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. He was not just responding to the assessment of a special counsel. He was trying to blunt an attack that's hounded him in his bid for a second term. It's How totally bad I... is your memory and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. Biden allies let loose with a barrage of criticism, not just at the report's conclusion that the president would not be charged with unlawfully possessing classified documents was being lost amid the controversy, but also blaming the Justice Department for being politicized. That's the same argument repeatedly used by the likely Republican nominee, former President Donald Trump, regarding the many cases filed against him. Yet survey after survey finds the 81-year-old Biden's age concerns voters in Michigan and across the country. Well before the special counsel's report, Michigan Democrats like Congresswoman Debbie Dingell said Biden and the party need to address the issue head-on in both the primaries and the general election. He's going to have to demonstrate. We're going to have to talk about how he does have the energy, how he does have, quite frankly, the seasoning for leadership. But what I always find ironic is that people talk about age, and Donald Trump is almost the same age as Joe Biden. We have two senior men. Dingell says Democrats should instead focus on a message Biden has struggled to get through to voters, the benefits stemming from his economic agenda. That includes lowering prescription drug costs for some seniors, strengthening domestic supply chains, and, administration officials claim, creating more than 300,000 jobs in Michigan alone while helping repair crumbling roadways in the state. We've been saying for years we need to fix our roads and bridges. We all see the orange cones. We've been in these traffic jams. That money came in because the president had the leadership to pass the bipartisan infrastructure law. And we need to remind people. But Biden's push for electric vehicles in particular has produced speed bumps on the campaign trail. The United Auto Workers Union, long a bastion of Democratic support, hesitated to endorse Biden, in part because of concerns that the move to electric vehicles could cost union jobs, even after Biden became the first sitting president to join striking workers on a picket line. Biden eventually gained the UAW's endorsement and the extra help stumping for votes that comes with it. In an exclusive interview with WDET's Russ McNamara, the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, said comparing Biden with Trump was no contest. It's just the body of work and looking at both candidates... President Biden has a history of standing with workers. The other, you know, his two favorite words are you're fired. And that's not something that uh, working class people ever want to hear. But the president's re-election campaign ran into something no candidate wants to hear, calls to abandon Biden because of his support for Israel during the ongoing war in Gaza. Protesters picketed outside a meeting in Dearborn between Metro Detroit leaders and Biden administration officials. 
activists initially refused to meet with the Biden campaign, then criticized Michigan officials who did, like State Representative Abraham Ayash. He says electoral politics were not on the agenda. But Ayash adds that Democrats' assertion that Palestinians would fare much more poorly if there's a renewed Trump administration than under Biden is not a winning game plan for the president. When I run for office, my message is not that the other guy's going to be worse than me. If something's not right, you don't blame your constituents, but you try to change course and fix your strategy. And I think that's what the president has an opportunity to do. Some experts say Biden's election quandary extends far beyond whether he can help broker a ceasefire in Gaza. Michigan State University professor Matt Grossman directs the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research. He acknowledges that some Arab American voters threaten to sit out the presidential election if U.S. policy towards Israel does not change. But the much bigger threat is that there are plenty of Muslim and Arab voters in Michigan who aren't that attached to the Democratic Party. And we actually had a move among uh, the Muslim and Arab populations especially in the Dearborn area, towards the Republicans in the last election. But it was all about schools, uh, LGBT issues, uh, social conservatism. Yet another wild card for Democrats in this election is the emergence of a third presidential candidate beyond the major parties. Robert Kennedy Jr. recently stumped in Grand Rapids as he attempts to get enough signatures to be placed on the Michigan ballot. Democrats have countered with billboards that claim Kennedy Jr.'s election bid is funded by the same donor backing Trump. Michigan State's Grossman, for one, says Kennedy Jr. and even activists unhappy with U.S. policy towards Israel and Palestine may have more traction in the primary season than when voting begins in the November general election. At this point in the campaign, there are always more people saying that they either will support a third-party candidate or won't vote for either candidate who end up deciding that even though they dislike both candidates, one is better than the other. And one of the big correlates of turnout is just, is the election expected to be close? Then they're more likely to turn out than they might think today. That means Democrats' best strategy for this election may be to promote how Biden's legislative victories are impacting voters' daily lives, try to invigorate the party's traditional base, and hope the president, at the very least, does not fall too far behind Donald Trump. That was WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter reporting on the Democrats' national strategy to win back the White House. You're listening to The Metro, the new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. Now, despite the rising death toll in Gaza, Israel has not stopped its mission to root out Hamas leaders involved in the October 7th attack, and America is continuing to send weapons to Israel. But the U.S. State Department is now investigating to see if Israel is misusing its weapons in Gaza by attacking civilians. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly sat down with Michelle Kelman to understand what the State Department is doing to prevent the deaths of more citizens, civilians, excuse me, in Gaza. The 
State Department has something called the Civilian Harm Incident Response Guidelines, which is kind of an internal reporting system for when U.S. weapons are used in high casualty attacks. Here's how State Department spokesman Matthew Miller describes it. That process is not intended to function as a rapid response mechanism. Rather, it is designed to systematically assess civilian harm incidents and develop appropriate policy responses to reduce the risk of such incidents occurring in the future and to drive partners to conduct military operations in accordance with international humanitarian law. Now, he wouldn't speak to specific incidents that are part of this formal review, but we do know that the State Department has been looking into the alleged use of white phosphorus in Lebanon and that it's been looking into some of the deadliest attacks in Gaza. The Wall Street Journal says that includes a 2,000-pound bomb dropped on a refugee camp last October there. So here's my question. If the State Department determines that Israel has, in fact, misused American weapons, are there consequences for Israel? Well, there could be aid cutoffs, but, you know, you heard Miller say that this is not a rapid response mechanism, so I would not expect the U.S. to come to any quick conclusions about that or cut off aid. And that worries Josh Paul. He quit the State Department last year because of the war in Gaza. He had worked on you know, military aid packages, including those to Israel. Take a listen to how he responded to the news that the U.S. is looking into some of these incidents. The time for action is now. Uh, It is not in six months or a year from now when we are looking at a new tranche of requests from Israel. What we need is to ensure that U.S. weapons are not being used to kill thousands of civilians. And this is a question we already know the answer to. So I would say, you know, while it is good that the department is applying some of its tools to look at these questions, The answers are obvious, and the time for action is now. And so far, Paul says the Biden administration has not put any real conditions on military aid to Israel. And why not? You know, the the U.S. is focused now on getting another pause in the fighting in exchange for the release of hostages held by Hamas. And the argument that I often hear over here at the State Department is that the pressure should be on Hamas, not on Israel right now. U.S. officials also often say that Hamas has been using civilians as human shields, and that's one of the reasons why there is such a high civilian death toll in Gaza. Now, diplomats do raise specific cases directly with Israeli authorities, and they do press Israelis to limit civilian casualties, but they don't seem to want to use aid as leverage with Israel at this point. Hmm. What about members of Congress? Because we have been hearing voices over on Capitol Hill uh, pushing back against the Biden administration on this. Well, certainly some Democrats have. Chris Van Hollen, who's from Maryland, says that Benjamin Netanyahu's government in Israel has mostly ignored U.S. calls to protect civilians in Gaza, and he does think it's time for the U.S. to do something. Um, The next test, Mary Louise is what happens in Rafah near Gaza's border with Egypt. Israel says there are a few Hamas battalions there, but there's also more than a million Palestinians sheltering in Rafah. And the Biden administration has told Israel that it needs a real plan to protect civilians before any ground offensive. So far, U.S. officials say there's no credible plan. That was NPR's Mary Louise Kelly speaking with NPR's Michelle Kellerman. You are listening to The Metro here on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. And bringing it back here to Detroit, the city of Detroit is looking for two prestigious positions. The Office of Arts, Culture and Entrepreneurship wants the public to weigh in on the next Detroit Poet Laureate and, for the first time ever, a Detroit Composer Laureate. WDET's Amanda LeClaire spoke with Rochelle Riley, 
the director of the city's Office of Arts, Culture, and Entrepreneurship. In 2020, when Detroit's longtime poet laureate Naomi Long Magic died, she was a towering figure. Her New York Times uh, obituary was legendary. And we knew that we would have to have someone in that post because of the rich history of poetic excellence in Detroit. But in addition to that, we also know Detroit's musical excellence. I mean, literally, you know, <laughs> it was Detroiters who created the sound of young America, techno, our symphonic uh, offerings are, are stellar. So I also wanted to do a composer laureate. And uh, these two positions will work like our city historian to make sure that people inside and outside of Detroit understand the rich cultural heritage that we have that continues to this day. So fantastic. So is the composer laureate, is this the first time there will be a Detroit uh, composer laureate? Yes, I do like to do first. So this is this is something that was done, and, and some other cities have, have done it, some others have attempted it, some people have talked to us about trying to do this in years past. This is the first time I've been able to do something like that, and what we want is someone who's going to advocate for and represent Detroit's musical experience and community and history, and they're going to create a legacy project. You know, one of my favorite films is Mr. Holland's Opus, where you know, somebody creates an original composition and they may not get to hear it or to believe it until it happens. Well, we want people to know that in Detroit, there will be an original piece of music every year that represents our city and it will be performed in celebration of our continued commitment to musical greatness. Uh, they're also going to collaborate with residents and organizations and programming on, on schools and projects because I want any child in the city of Detroit who wants to grow up to be a poet or a composer or a performer to know that um, they, are, they are wanting to do something where there's a rich history of that already being done and that they can do it in Detroit. They don't have to go to New York or to Austin or to Atlanta or to Seattle. We're going to do that here. We're going to nurture that here. We're going to support that here. Yeah, very prestigious position. So so I know I only Detroit residents can qualify, but these are public nominations, right? So if someone knows someone, they can offer their name up. These are open nominations. We expect to get them from anywhere and everywhere, but we do want it to be a Detroit resident because it's a Detroit project. We love our city. We want to lift up uh, things that speak to Detroit. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that's great. And I'm hoping that maybe some other cities might want to follow suit and do something like that. And I know that um, I have been talking a lot with Michigan's Poet Laureate uh, about these types of things where we must have these public positions, these positions of stature that speak to creativity. Uh, creativity takes courage. You'll be hearing a lot more about that in 2024 from my office. And we want people to be courageous. That was Rochelle Riley, the director of the city's Office of Arts, Culture and Entrepreneurship. WDET's Amanda LeClaire spoke with Riley. The deadline for nominations is March 15th. Now, joining us live on the Metro is Nandi Comer. Nandi Comer is the poet laureate of Michigan and a native Detroiter. And as you just heard from Rochelle Riley, the director of uh, the city's arts, culture and entrepreneurship department, uh, the city is looking for a new composer laureate. And I want to ask you, Nandi, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yay. So when we hear Riley say we want people to be courageous, uh, being Michigan's Poet Laureate right now, what does courage mean to you, especially pursuing a creative career path? 
Oh, I mean, courage just as an artist in general, thinking forward, being forward thinking and thinking about how to respond to the world that you're experiencing and how to be a support to the community. Um, courage also means to think outside of the boundaries of what we've already seen before, to think of projects that will help to celebrate an art form and advocate for artists who are really doing, already doing incredible work in the city, but really creating a, uh, building a platform for those writers to be able to really share their work. It really takes a lot of audacity to be able to think uh, outside of our everyday ideas in order to create something really vibrant and new. And so what can people expect from both the Detroit Poet Laureate and the Composer Laureate? What are going to be some of their roles throughout the city uh, once they're chosen? Well, I imagine that the um, both of them will be holding a responsibility in terms of like really going out to all parts of the city and creating programming for all of them. I um, have not designed either of those positions, mm-hmm. but from what I, from the conversations that I had with Rochelle and from seeing the work that I saw Naomi Long Magic do, it means really like putting yourself out as an artist to show your own work, but even more so really showcasing the work of other artists in the city. How do you create a space for other uh, artists who are interested in these fields and really show them that they can have success in that? So as we switch gears here just a little bit, there's the Inside Out Literary Arts program that's happening. It's the second annual Detroit Youth Poetry Con. You're also going to be there. You're going to be leading workshops and helping young people write. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown about what's going to be going down uh, that day, March 9th? Oh, yes. I am very excited (laughs) about this because I was an Inside Out student when I was in high school, one of the first classes to to receive the benefits of having poets come into my classroom and really give us the firsthand experience of what it's like to be a professional poet. And so Poetry Con, which is, um, you know, totally spearheaded by Inside Out Literary Arts Project, I'm an invited guest. There will be a whole day of workshops. There'll be several open mics for the youth to be able to share their work with one another and other poets. Um, And then one of the highlights of it is that they've invited a New York Times bestseller, Ross Gay, to be a featured workshop leader and um, featured speaker at the end of the day. That that event is open to the public and you can go online and register because it will be a full event if you're thinking of going to see that headlining event. So I think the youth are really going to be really excited about it. And I think that everyone participating is really going to get something out of it. My last question before I let you go, what right now would you say is the state or the world of poetry in the city of Detroit? What would you like to see coming out of it? Well, I mean, I love being a poet in Detroit. There are so many spaces for Detroiters to really get involved in poetry and so much, so many kinds of poetry out there. So we've got like the spoken word artists, the performance poet artists. We have page poets that have just been making incredible feats on a global level. Our poets have been doing really great um, all around the country. What I would like to see though, is I would like to see Detroit actually see 
how incredible their writers are. I don't think Detroiters actually know just how great their poets are. And so I would love to see Detroit have a center for writers, a place where writers can not only learn about the work of other writers in Detroit, but also a place to gather and really learn from one another about what an incredible art form it is. Nandi, thank you so much for taking time out to, to speak with us on the show live this uh, morning. Nandi Comer is the poet laureate of Michigan and a native Detroiter. Once again, thank you so much for taking time out. And I would look forward to chatting with you a little bit further about the workshops coming up. Oh, yeah, I would love that. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, the new show connecting you, Metro Detroiters, through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. Coming up, we're joined live in studio by Bridge Detroit's Malachi Barrett to chat about Detroit City Council President Mary Sheffield and her possible run for Detroit Mayor. Here on 1019 WDET, I am Tia Graham. I am here with Nick Austin. And I just want to say it is a chilly, chilly day today. Uh, we have rain and snow showers forecasted. Today's high near 42 degrees, wind gusts 35, 37 miles per hour. So really, really gusty out there. Just make sure you're prepared for those weather forecasts for the rest of the week. However, we are joined live in studio, Nick. Yeah, and he's brazing through that cold. I walked out to meet him and saw the snow coming down <laughs> around us. So good on you, Mr. Malachi Barrett. But before I let people know more about what you're up to, The reason you're here is because this week we learned Detroit City Council President Mary Sheffield has quietly amassed quite a war chest in donations for a potential mayor bid in 2025. While she has not formally announced a run for city mayor, her campaign account ended 2023 with over $120,000 in donations. Top donors included Ambassador Bridge owner Matthew Maroon and his wife, who contributed the maximum allowed $8,325 each. So to learn more about her fundraising efforts, as well as the outlook of the race, we're joined right now by Malachi Barrett, a reporter covering the city, Fort Bridge, Detroit. Malachi, welcome to the Metro. Howdy. How you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Glad to see you here. And I know you took a look through uh, the publicly available campaign disclosures for this potential bid from City Council President uh, Sheffield. What stood out to you when you looked through those numbers? Yeah. So as you've noted, you know, she's not officially uh, announced her candidacy. She hasn't held a launch party, that kind of thing. But these fundraising numbers to me show that she's beginning to take this seriously. She's building relationships with influential donors and she's beginning to put together a campaign infrastructure that's going to be important. The next city uh, elections in 2025. So we have quite a bit of time left, but uh, certainly seems that she's, you know, putting the the work toward building a, a campaign that, you know, she needs those donors. I've been told it takes about a million dollars to run for mayor. So $120,000 is, you know, long way to go still. But it's interesting to kind of look through these and see what kind of relationship she's starting to build. Yeah. And I'm thinking also in terms of 
at this point in the juncture? Because if you looked at anybody else who's potentially looking to run for mayor, their numbers would pale in comparison to what she's fundraised at this point. And you mentioned influential uh, potential donors, for example, the Maroon family. I know that was a headline number that came out here. Uh, Historically, has Sheffield received money from the Maroon family? And are you aware of whether she's voted in relation to any projects or actions where it looked like that family would have an outsized interest? Yeah, so she accepted uh, nearly $17,000 combined from Matthew Maroon, uh, owner of the Ambassador Bridge, uh, and his wife. And, you know, that's notable because I think the Maroons have a pretty rough reputation in Detroit for expanding their land holdings and the bridge company assets into neighborhoods. Certainly, uh, Matthew's father, Manuel Maroon, had kind of a worse reputation for um, being more aggressive in those dealings. Uh, Matthew himself has seems to have a little bit more goodwill. They completed a community benefits deal with residents in the Hubbard Richard neighborhood at the end of last year that provides some protections for the neighborhoods. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is how these donations kind of reveal potential relationships between elected officials and these power brokers. The Maroon family has donated quite a bit to uh, city council races and mayoral elections in Detroit and in the region at large and, and really in the state of Michigan for a long time. So it's not, um, you know, surprising that they would be beginning to donate to candidates. Um, you know, the size of the donation is certainly interesting. It's, it's the maximum they're allowed to give under the law. Um, but, you know, candidates uh, need votes to win. They also need money. And so, you know, you have to kind of think about what candidates are doing to bring in both of those things. Um, you know, I wasn't able to learn whether there were any meetings between Sheffield and the Maroons, any kind of discussions about what a Sheffield uh, mayor administration would look like. She's certainly been, um, you know, less than eager to give developers what they want, especially when it comes to downtown projects. Um, she had voted uh, to approve the land swap deal uh, for Riverside Park that a lot of residents were um, opposed to because it would, in their mind, diminish some of the leverage they would have in, in negotiating that community benefits agreement. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, you can't really say that she's been like a major supporter of a lot of what the Maroons have been doing. So I think it's kind of yet to be seen what this money actually means in terms of like her policy decisions and does this kind of affect anything that they have coming down the pipe because you know, with the second bridge expansion, um, you know, there's there's a lot kind of happening in that area right yeah. now. They've been built, buying up a lot of land on the east side as well. So, um, it you know, yeah. interesting to see. Now, I appreciate that uh, perspective, Malachi, because as you mentioned, first of all, look at the record. That's going to tell you a lot there. And just to dovetail off of what you were mentioning, the Maroon family does have a long history of donating to Detroit candidates. We've seen them donate to Mayor Duggan, for example, 5000 in 2017. Current council members Waters, Tate, Durhall, Benson, and Waters have all received money from them, though, at various amounts. So one of the things, before we get into other potential candidates for this run, I was thinking about is is do we notice any pattern with any of these contributions in terms of influence? Or is this just one of those things where at such a low number, if you have that kind of money, you're just trying to get in the room, trying to be able to talk to people or maybe just not even pick, tick off an elected official by making these contributions? Yeah, I think on, you know, for the Maroons, it's kind of due diligence that you would you would want to kind of build that goodwill with some donations. And it kind of makes sense to seed it out to people that end up in positions of power. I think it's very difficult for me to say, you know, this influenced X vote or, you know, this this kind of shifted uh, a council member's opinion on a particular thing. Right. I don't I don't really have that kind of inside track on those relationships. But, you know, Sheffield has taken money from them in the past before. As you said, they've uh, donated to several of the current uh, city council members. Uh, Mayor Duggan has taken money from them in the past. So, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, it it takes about a million dollars to run a mayoral campaign. And a lot of that money ends up coming from, uh, you know, powerful uh, individuals, uh, developers, 
uh, as well as like union groups. The SEIU has been a donator to Sheffield in the past. The Carpenters and Millwrights were a pretty large donors in these latest disclosures. Um, another thing that kind of stood out to us is uh, she collected some money from the owners of a couple of uh, recreational marijuana dispensaries. Marijuana has been a pretty contentious issue in Detroit, as some residents feel like there's been uh, too much proliferation of those into their neighborhoods. Yeah, and some so of the church leaders mean? too, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, what you really hear is a lot of older folks and, yeah. and church leaders saying that they don't want marijuana expanding in Detroit for a lot of the reasons that has kind of stigmatized that for a long time. But it's legal here, and it's a business here, and you know, residents take advantage of those business opportunities. So that's where a lot of that tension comes in. You know, can residents benefit from the business aspect of that? Does it harm neighborhoods where it's been? Um, and, and certainly I think that kind of longstanding uh, concern about driving down quality of life from older folks who have that kind of long, you know, it's been illegal for most of our lives, right? That's still really lingering. Yeah, yeah. Well, before I let you go, and by the way, if you do find out any of that influence, you let us know. We'll, we'll have back. you back here on the show, okay? But before I let you go, one of the things we also noted is Detroit City Council Police Chief, former uh, Police Chief James Craig, suspended his bid for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate this fall, citing a lack of funds. But he also stated he's strongly considering a run for mayor next year. Do you have any idea how viable a bid like that might be in the city and uh, do we know anything about you know mayor duggan is he going to try to run for it who else might be in this uh, pool for 2025 so the mayor has not said what he intends to do if he plans to run for re-election uh, for a fourth term but you know basically any democratic official that i've talked to over the last year has said he's all but assured to run for governor so that's what we're kind of expecting um but you know anything could happen there he could decide to run for another term that uh, gubernatorial election is in until 2026 so there'd be a little bit of time in between james craig is interesting he might have a better chance at the local level than running for senate but he suspended his campaign funnily enough as we're talking because he didn't have enough donor support to keep going so craig really hasn't been a uh, a very serious candidate for offices that he saw you know when he ran for governor uh, he uh, was bounced off the ballot because he failed to gather enough signatures. He was among a group of candidates whose nominating petitions were kind of rife with fraud, uh, and, and most of his signatures were thrown out. So he was tricked by a scam company. So it was it was like a whole thing. Craig versus Sheffield, I think, would be a really interesting matchup, though. Like, there's some really clear contrast there. Sheffield's like half of Craig's age. She's more progressive. Craig has really allied himself with Donald Trump. He might have some goodwill among older voters who you know appreciate his time as police chief. But he also provided over presided over an era where surveillance expansion happened. There was some real damage that could have been done with his handling of racial justice protests. I mean, demonstrators sued the city and won a million dollar lawsuit for excessive force by his officers. And then when he launched his campaign for governor, they showed up in force on Belle Isle. So I would imagine there's still a lot of resistance there. And, you know, he's saying he's exploring it, which is about as serious as anybody else in this race has been so far. <laughs> right. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I think he probably does have people saying, hey, you should give this a look. And right. he might. But is he able to kind of talk to issues? Yeah. He hasn't really for the other races he's been in. So yeah. I don't know. In fairness, in 2024, Malachi, I've heard people saying you should potentially throw your hat in the ring. I'd vote for you. I'd no, vote no, for you. No, no, no. Those people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Malachi Barrett, reporter with Bridge Detroit. Thanks for joining us on the Metro. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we're going to talk to a Michigander behind the creation of Pop-Tarts, or actually the Michigander behind the creation of Pop-Tarts. He passed away this week, but we'll learn more about the history of the treat later in the show. But first, a break.
Welcome back to the Metro, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you either grew up grabbing a Pop-Tart, unraveling that silver wrapping, and for me, popping it into the toaster and going about my way. It was my favorite thing to do, strawberry, by the way. However, Michigander and one of the men credited for creating the Pop-Tart, William Bill Post, died this week at the age of 96. The son of Dutch immigrants, Post grew up in Grand Rapids. At the age of 16, he started a part-time job washing trucks for the Heckman Biscuit Factory, later known as Keebler Company. And later on, he came to create Pop-Tarts. To discuss how this invention came about, we have George Franklin here. He is a lawyer and the former vice president of Worldwide Government Relations for Kellogg Company. He currently writes books about the food industry. George, welcome to the Metro. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So who was Bill Post and how did he come to make Pop-Tarts? Well, Bill Post, I was actually with Bill Post about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm at the funeral of a fellow named Bill Lamoth, who is a central figure in the creation of Pop-Tarts. Bill Lamoth ended up becoming the chairman and CEO of Kellogg, but he's the guy that came up with the idea of Pop-Tarts. And ironically, it was in reaction to Post Cereal that he drove to Grand Rapids to find a bakery that could create Pop-Tarts, and he met Bill Post, no relation to Post Cereal. Wow. And he got up there because, you know, Kellogg was basically a cereal company. They, they, didn't, they didn't do anything like a Pop-Tart. And um, so they, they bet Bill. And Bill said, yeah, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And so he experimented and experimented and tried different formulas. And I, I've read somewhere you would take it home and his kids would try it. You know, he'd <laughs> test it out on his kids. In the meantime, the other part of the story that people don't realize is that Bill Lamoth, he got in his car. And he drove to Orville, Ohio, and he met a guy named Paul Smucker. And they shook hands because Bill Lamoth needed some jelly to put in the Pop-Tarts that Bill Post was going to make at the Heckman Bakery in Grand Rapids. And Paul Smucker, wonderful people, wonderful family, uh, he ended up becoming a member of the Kellogg Board of Directors, a, a, a trustee of the Kellogg Foundation. And the three of them shared a lifelong relationship, professional friendship uh, through the creation of Pop-Tarts. And, you know, just thinking about that and hearing the story and this, you know, these three men decided to come together and build this this industry around Pop-Tarts and, you know, using kids as, the, as a test mark there. Uh, why do you think right. Pop-Tarts became so successful? Because kids loved them. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say, you know, there, there still is a... Um, well, when I was with Kellogg, I assume they're still making the Pop-Tarts up in Grand Rapids. But you just can't believe there are that many teenagers in America when you see how many Pop-Tarts are coming out of that factory. And, you know, it's like you said in your opening, you just loved them. They were great. They were fun. Um, they were, you know, so they were a snack when you came home from yeah. school. And um, I think the Post Post had a, a, a different name. Their, their product didn't, didn't make it very well. But I think it was Lamoth that came up with the name Pop-Tarts. And I think that had a handle to it that just caught the imagination of people. I know. I just hear Pop-Tart and I just think delicious. But how did Pop-Tarts change Kellogg as a company? That's my last question to you before I let you go. Yeah, well, you know, when, this was the early 60s, and literally the headquarters was in the cereal plant because it was a cereal company. That was it. And I think it was the beginning of an evolution of the company 
into different food products and different areas of the food system, uh, they weren't just solely a, a, a cereal company anymore. It, it made it made a, a dramatic change long term. And as I mentioned, Bill Lamoth ended up becoming the chairman and CEO of Kellogg for years. Yeah, so just I almost just said I'm going to let you go, but I actually have one more question. If you sure. can, just go into the relationship a little bit more with those three individuals and just talk about how they decided to build that that brand of Pop-Tarts and how they just kind of created that legacy that we all have li- loved to live with today. They were a, in an era when a handshake was a handshake, and that's <laughs> all you needed. And uh, they were in it together. Uh, they No one wanted to take all the credit. And uh, Bill Post... He definitely made the first Pop-Tart. There's no question about that. But as he would tell you, when I was with him a year and a half ago, it was a team effort. And the Smuckers and the Kellogg people and the Heckman people then became Keebler. It was a team effort, and they worked together, and they created a great product. Yes, they did. Like I said, grew up on Pop-Tarts. Probably didn't need to, but definitely grew up on Pop-Tarts, eating those all the time. Loved them so much. That was George Franklin, former Kellogg Company VP of Worldwide Government Relations. His book, Raisin Bran and Other Serial Wars, details his time working as a lobbyist for the company. Thank you so much, George, for sharing this beautiful story about Pop-Tarts. Love that so much. Thanks for having me, and I love your show. Thank you. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin with Tia Graham. You know, Tia, what I learned from that conversation is mm-hmm. if I turn, t- change my name to Post, if I was Nick Post, maybe I could have a high-powered job in snacks. I was about to say, Nick, I don't know already. Nick Austin, I think of like, you know, Steve Austin, Steve Col- you know, Stone Cold Stunner. I think, yep, I think of that. So I'm like, you're already famous in my book. I'll, I'll go with you. Thank you, <laughs> Tia. But you know who's famous in everybody's book? The host of the, the In the Groove. In the Groove. Ryan Patrick Hooper. Ryan. Facts. No lies detected here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here talking to you two snacks in there. We've got a... Um, we have plenty of time to think that we, up. I love it. we got a great show ahead for you. Uh, you know, sometimes with the weather, you have to make a decision. Do, do you fight it and try to go upbeat or do you try to match the vibes? And as the snowflakes fall for another hour or two here in Metro Detroit... So will the beats. We've got a lot of great music coming up on In the Groove. We're going to start with new music from Yard Act. They just had a late night TV session on one of those shows. And I love this band because kind of have a punk energy, a no way vibe. But on their new album, they're saying, I'm really sick of being broke. Let's sell out a little bit. Let's make some hits. Let's actually make some music that makes people dance. And If there's one thing that I can wholeheartedly endorse, Nick and Tia, it's shilling. So I really support Yard Act. And we're going to play some of their music coming up on In the Groove with me, Ryan Patrick Hooper. He's no shill. He's just your host of the Metro, Ryan Patrick Hooper. In the Groove. He's the host of In the Groove. We're the host of the Metro. I'll take the Groove, the Metro. We can swap anytime, man. That's the Metro for Thursday, February 15th. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrand. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music is done by Sam Bolbian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn. And our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. Thanks for listening and talk to you all tomorrow as well. You've been listening to WDET Detroit.
NPR station. You're connected to news, music, and conversation. Once again, goodbye, Nick. You're lucky I didn't say, welcome to Detroit today. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.